I was talking to, to my daughters uh, yesterday morning, as some of you know me, after getting donuts, which is probably not a surprise to you. I don't actually eat donuts every day. Some of you think that. But, uh, uh, but I was just telling them, and, and, and it's funny, I can't remember how, how it came up, but how I love being a pastor and how I'd pick that over any job. And that's because of all of you. No. Uh, which, which, which is kind of true. But, uh, uh, but one of the other jobs, and I didn't think about this till a later, that always interested me, although I do not have an artistic bone in my body, is the job of a storyboard artist. Do, do, do any of you know what a storyboard artist is? It's, it's just fascinating. So a storyboard artist with simple black and white sketches uh, kind of works from a script or works to put a story together in a way that shows exactly what every scene is like, maybe even down to the angle of each shot. So it's kind of like a visual script for a movie or a story. Uh, and I think what's always fascinated me about what storyboard artists do, and really I think this is fascinating about sketching in general, is how few lines it takes to create a scene, to capture emotion, to show how the story moves along. In just a few lines, you're like, oh, I, I get what this scene is going to be about. In ways, I think that Philippians 2, 6 through 11, is like the Apostle Paul's storyboard of God's plan for eternity. And of course, it's different because it's not an artistic sketch, but with such few words, God's plan for eternity is boiled down to just a, a few verses. From eternity past before creation to eternity future after glorification. In these few verses, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, the entire plot of eternity is, is, is revealed in just a few scenes. Now, each verse, though, isn't a quick sketch, quickly thrown together, something that could be tossed aside or thrown away if it doesn't capture the scene perfectly. Instead, each phrase, each verse in Philippians 2, 6 through 11 is a masterpiece. It captures in an economy of word the grandness of God's eternal plan. So it's kind of a storyboard of eternity done by a Rembrandt or a Leonardo da Vinci. Just, just perfect, every, every word, every letter perfectly placed. And so that's a little what Philippians 2, 6 through 11 is like. Now, I know I'm, uh, I'm, I'm building a high expectation here, but I didn't write it, so I feel okay about that. So go ahead and turn to Philippians 2, 6 through 11. I'll start again at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And here in some of your Bibles, this, this may even look like a poem or, or a couple verses of a song. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And right there we see from eternity past to eternity future, this, this storyboard, this sketch of, of what all of eternity is about. The glory of God in exalting his son, Jesus Christ. Now, the uh, book of Philippians is written by God's messenger, the apostle Paul, as he was awaiting trial before Emperor Nero for his proclamation of Christ. He's writing to the church of Philippi, a church he planted about 10 years prior. It's a letter written to encourage the Philippians about how Paul in prison is doing. They love Paul and they were concerned about him. But it's also a letter written in response to some of the concerns that Paul had heard about the Philippian church, about how they were starting to succumb to uh, the discouragement of oppression, how they were being affected by some, some, some fractions starting inside the Philippian church. Paul begins his exhorting part of the letter in Philippians 1, 27. 
where he calls them to live worthy of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, in a way that's appropriate and fitting to being citizens of heaven. In Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul instructs them how to maintain unity within the church by living humbly. Last week, we saw the extent of Jesus' humility in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. We ended with a question for you to be thinking about. If in verse 5, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, this attitude of humility, if he ends with that in verse 5, and then he gives the example of that humility in verses 6 through 8, why doesn't Paul stop there? Why doesn't he end with a period there instead of going on in verses 9 through 11 to the glorification of Christ, to the exaltation of Christ? Now, it could be for Paul that the news is just too good. It's too thrilling to end, in a sense, with, with, with Christ obeying to the point of death, even death on the cross, to Christ being shamed. You, you can't leave Jesus dead. And so maybe that's why Paul keeps going, but he doesn't go to the resurrection next. He goes straight to the exaltation of Christ. So why does he keep going? I think that what Paul's doing here is that after he challenges them to be like Christ in his humiliation, he encourages them to be like Christ through his glorification. This is really about encouraging them as he calls them to do something hard. And in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, this morning by God's grace, the Apostle Paul reveals God's response to Christ's humility so that we will be committed and encouraged as we seek to be humble. This is about our being encouraged. It's about our commitment to continue to be humble, to maintain unity, to consider others better than ourselves, to seek what's good for others. And I think that Paul does that because honestly, and maybe you felt this, humbling ourselves to doing what's best for others can be scary, right? It can be hard. You may be left thinking, but what about me? Who's going to watch out for me? Because listen to what he calls the Philippians 2 in verses 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing from selfishness. How often do we do things from selfishness? With humility of mind in verse 3. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Regard others, consider others more important than you. That is not how humans are hardwired, right? That's going to take a risk to say, wait, you want me to consider my wife is more important than me? My kids is more important than me? My care group is more important than me? My neighbors is more important than me? It says in verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interest. And that merely, we, we talked about this when, when we studied this, is not there. It's just don't look out for your own interest. But that's opposite, really, every instinct we have besides our union with Christ, besides the new creature we are in Christ. Our every instinct without Christ is to look out for ourselves. So I think that Paul is encouraging them that that. That you can do this, and he's going to tell them why. So this morning, we're going to explore Christ's exaltation first in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And then we're going to apply Christ's exaltation to the everyday reality that it's hard for us to be humble. Okay, so we're going to look at how Christ is exalted, and then we're going to look at that truth there, and then we're going to apply it so that we're encouraged to be humble. So let's begin by exploring Christ's exaltation. So first we're going to start in verse 9. And Paul gives the reason why Christ is exalted. So if you're there taking notes, we're going to start in verse 9 with the reason for the exaltation of Christ. And that's what Paul begins in verse 9. For this reason also, or if you're in the ESV, therefore, or this is why, or that's why, and he's pointing back to what Christ has done. What follows in verses 9 through 11 is God the Father's response to Jesus' humility in verses 6 through 8. We looked last week at the contentment of Christ that being equal with God, being in the form of God, in the essence of God, being God the Son, he doesn't use that deity for his own advantage, but he's content being the Son, doing what the Father commands. 
We look at verse 7, how he empties himself. And Paul explains how he empties himself by adding, by taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. He humbled himself by becoming man. In verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That he demonstrated that humility through obedience. So because of Christ's humility, because of his contentment and his emptying himself and his obedience, God the Father responds by exalting him for this reason. Now, Jesus wasn't surprised that the Father exalted him. He wasn't surprised that the Father honored him. The Son of God had been looking forward to this exaltation by the Father. See, Jesus had taught repeatedly what is a principle with God. Matthew 23, verse 12, it says, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus knew that God exalts the humble. He quotes that, that, that same uh, phrase again in Luke 14, 11. In Luke 18, 14, three times in his ministry, Jesus quotes this. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. This is, how, this is God's pattern here of responding to both pride and to humility. Those who are proud are humbled, and those who are humbled are exalted. It's a concept that was taught before Jesus in the Old Testament. Proverbs 18.12, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Again in Proverbs 29, verse 23, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. It's clear that God exalts those who humble themselves. This teaching continues after Jesus in the New Testament. His, his brother James says, in James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The Apostle Peter learned this from the Lord Jesus in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Just bring those verses together that this was in Jesus' mindset throughout his ministry. As he humbled himself, he could look forward to being exalted. Jesus prayed on the night of his crucifixion in John 17 verses 4-5. He's speaking to God the Father. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And I think that work that he's given him to do is not just all the works of obedience, but he's even looking forward a little bit further to the cross that he's going to go through the next day. And he's like saying, Father, I've done everything you've given me. I've completely obeyed you. 100% obedience. And then he says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He prays to be glorified. He asks his father to return him to the glory he had had in eternity past. Prophesying about the Messiah in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah writes, and this is God speaking, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Jesus had obeyed the Father, knowing that for this reason, he would be exalted. His humbling was devastating, but it wasn't eternal. His humbling was tragic, but it was only a temporary humbling. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The point is, Scripture is clear, and that's what Jesus looked forward to, to being exalted by the Father. So that's the reason, for this reason, we see in the beginning of verse 9. So that's the reason for the exaltation of Christ. Next, we're going to look in the second half of verse 9 at the act of exaltation. At the act of exaltation. How does God the Father exalt his Son? In verse 9, God is the subject of the sentence here. God, and then it's followed by two verbs. Highly exalted him and bestowed on him. And that's how God the Father exalts his Son. Now, highly exalted is not a word that has a comparison. Okay? It's, it's not exalted him more than he had been exalted, which is, would be very difficult to think about God the Son being exalted more. He was exalted, but then, then he got exalted him a little bit more. It went from like a 9 to a 10 on the glory scale. No, the idea here is that he broke the glory scale. There is no way to measure his glory. God exalted him with infinite glory, similar to Psalm 97 verse 9. 
The psalmist says, For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. He doesn't mean that Yahweh is a little bit better than the other gods or, or at the top of all the gods. No, he's in a whole other class. He's incomparable. He's unique, like Jeremiah 10 verse 6 says. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. Some say there's always room at the top, but not when it comes to God's Son. God's capacity to exalt Christ had been exhausted at his ascension, even as his wrath had been extinguished upon Christ at his crucifixion. When Christ was crucified, God's wrath was poured out upon him, and now exaltation is poured upon him as high as it could be. The Father directs the universal spotlight on his Son and says, Look at him. Worship him. Nothing compares to him. God had super-exalted Christ, had supremely honored him. And then it describes how that's done and bestowed upon him. It says in verse 9, uh, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. He builds upon the verb here, highly exalted, and shows how he highly exalted him. He's kind of amplifying the meaning of that verb. The father, and what this word bestowed means, is to give graciously, to give freely. The father didn't bestow this honor on the son begrudgingly, but willingly. He wasn't submitting to peer pressure in the court of heaven, saying, come on, you should do this. Just as much in Romans 8.32, the same word is used. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In Christ Jesus, we are freely given us everything we need. God freely, graciously bestowed on him, on his son, the name that's above every name. So what then does God graciously give? What is this name that is above every name? Now, Paul doesn't tell you right here what that name is. He kind of lets the suspense build. But I think for us, since we're dealing with it now, we should go ahead and, and kind of spoil this here. It says, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, now that, that's not the name there, we'll, we'll see that. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. And that is the name that God the Father bestowed on his son, the name Lord. Now maybe that seems like an anticlimactic name to you, right? Like Lord, oh, expected something bigger. You may know that in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the name of God, Yahweh, is translated Lord. There is no higher name for a first century Jew than the Lord. It is the name of God himself, the name of Yahweh. There, there's, there's the, the fact that Paul would say this is shocking. Especially in, now, not maybe for us, because we know that God the Son, that Jesus Christ is God. But for a first century Jew, this would have been, been wild. Listen to what Isaiah 42 verse 8 says. I am the Lord. And in your Bibles, that L-O-R-D is in capitals there. It's referring to Yahweh. I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. He says that. I will not give my name to anyone else. And that's exactly what God the Father does here. Gives his name to another. To God the Son. Now, we know in a sense though, he's not giving his glory to another. Why? Well, John 10 verses 30 explains why. I and the Father are one. This is incredible. It, 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 is, it is the nature of who God is, that he is Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons. I and the Father are one. So when he says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I will not give my glory to another, he doesn't. When he gives, says, I will not give my name to another, he gives his name to his Son. And what's going to be amazing here is that he gives his name, Yahweh, Lord, to the man 
Jesus Christ. Right? So this is something new here. That God the Son has taken on human flesh. He looks at his Son in heaven, the man Jesus Christ. And he super exalts him, graciously giving him his own name. He proclaims, this Jesus, this man before you, he is Yahweh. That's shocking. Now, he's not making his son Yahweh. He's recognizing that his son is Yahweh. And he's honoring him. He's super exalting him. Now, you, you, you might be wondering as you read through this, well, when does this happen? When does the father highly exalt his son? When does the father bestow on him the name which is above every name? It's following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Peter in Acts 2, verse 33 says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God. That's him preaching Peter there after Christ has been has been resurrected and ascended into heaven. Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 22 says, When God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. That is what we're seeing here. All things subjected under Christ. Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4. Describes Jesus sitting down at the right hand, the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He has inherited the name Lord, the name Yahweh. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And I think, and I wanted to bring that out just to show what's going on. This is a stage in human history where we are waiting for everything to be brought under submission to Christ. He's reigning over all. He has authority over all. But we're in the uh, scene of the storyboard where many are shaking their fists at him. Where not everyone has done what has happened here. Where not everyone has bowed their knee. Where not every tongue has confessed that Jesus is Lord. So we are right here in the middle between verses 9 and 10. So we saw the reason for the exaltation of Christ. We saw the act of that, how God super exalted him, bestowed on him the name of every name. And now we see what the purpose of that exaltation is in verses 10 and 11 of Philippians 2. So that, and that's the purpose, so that... At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That so that there explains what God's purpose is in exalting Christ. God's intentions always become results. We can have lots of purposes that, 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 that don't pan out. God's purpose here is perfect. It's accomplished. At the name of Jesus. Now, I think when we read that, it is easy to think that, you know, in heaven, you know, someone says, shouts out Jesus, and everyone else just bursts into applause. And, and that, that's a great scene, right? But that's not exactly what it's talking about here. Not talking about the crowds going wild when the name of Jesus is spoken. It's not so much a focus on the circumstance or the occasion, but on the reason. Because of the name of Jesus. And the focus here isn't on the name Jesus itself, but on the name belonging to Jesus. So it's, it, it's, it's on, on account of the name belonging to Jesus, because of the name belonging to Jesus, in honor of the name belonging to Jesus. And we know what that name belonging to Jesus is. It is Lord. And he describes what happens. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, Paul goes to great lengths to help us understand what this word every means. It means every, right? It's every intelligent being, not just humans, but angels as well. The visible and invisible, whether in heaven, on earth, or, or under the earth. And whether that under the earth is referring to hell, whether it's re 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 referring to, 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 to those who are dead, waiting for the final state, uh, it's every personal being, whether it's referring to demons in hell, but the point here is, isn't so much to classify everything in the universe. It's to talk about the exhaustiveness. Everything, 
every personal being, everywhere in creation, is going to bow to Jesus Christ. Paul's purpose here is to express clearly the universality of Christ's lordship. And the point here is not just those who willingly submit to Jesus Christ. When it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's not just referring to those who willingly submit to him, but everyone will. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. Now, if you notice in your Bibles, it says, every knee will bow. And it's in capital letters there. It's because it's a quote from the Old Testament. Paul has in mind there, Isaiah 45, verse 23. Let me read it to you. It's God speaking. I've sworn by myself. So God makes an oath by himself. There's no one greater he can swear by. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. God swears by himself because there's no one greater to swear by. God has promised that everyone will bow to him. That everyone will confess who he is. Paul looked forward to this unbreakable future event when every creature will bow. Every creature acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that the demons or the souls in hell have repented. That they've had a a 180 in their affection. No, instead it means that they are forced to bow the knee, though not willingly. That they are compelled to confess that Jesus is Lord. Their stiff necks are not willingly bent in adoration, but they are broken. Still trying to resist God's plan. Still resenting God's glory. One commentator says, the one that was completely obedient now must be completely obeyed. Every person in this room will one day bow to Jesus Christ. Will it be now when there's promise of forgiveness? Or later, after the potential of being forgiven has forever passed? Will it be now in love of your gracious master? Or later? When you will not receive any grace ever again in any form from the master. Will it be now when you perceive that you need life? Or later when you persist eternally in your rejection of the one who had offered you life? See, a soul in hell doesn't say, I love you, Lord. They are forever shaking their fists against God. They are going to be forced to bend their knee. They're going to be forced to confess that he is Lord. So are you going to bow now or later? Will it be now when you get to look forward to the eternal pleasure of his presence? Or later, when you'd sooner return to, he- return to hell than spend another minute in the presence of Yahweh? Those who are bowing and confessing aren't saying, I love it here. There are pleasures here forevermore. They're saying, I can't wait to get out of here. Send me back to hell because I hate them. That is the reality of the choice that you are making today. Every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess. But today is the day of salvation. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's his promise. Come to him and be saved. I don't want you to be there being forced to bow your knee. But loving bowing your knee. So we've seen so far the result of the exaltation of Christ. We looked at the act of that. We saw the the purpose of it. Now we're going to look at, or or, or we saw the reason, the act, and purpose. We're going to look at the culmination of the exaltation of Christ. And in a sense, this is kind of an overflow of the purpose. But this is where all of this is going towards. This is how the exaltation of Christ, where it culminates in. And we see that at the end of verse 11. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father's bestowing his own name on Jesus culminates in the Father's glory. To the glory of God the Father. The very thing that the Son craved was the Father's glory. His eternal motivation had been to see his Father glorified. Before the cross, Jesus had prayed in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Isn't that incredible? 
He understood who he was. He understood he had humbled himself to be exalted. Now bring me glory that I may glorify you. That was his prayer. And what we see here in Philippians 2, 9 through 11 is the answer to that prayer. The father is not threatened in any way by a son's glory. The son's glory is for the father's glory. God the son will always be submitted to God the father. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 28 talks about that. When all things are subjected to him to Christ. Uh, I would have to see that him is there as Christ or God, sorry. But then it says, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. This is the future where human history is going so that God may be all in all. And the son will be forever submitted to the father. 1 Corinthians eleven three describes that God is the head of Christ. All of this is about the father's glory. The father turns a spotlight of all creation onto his son and his son is a mirror directing that spotlight back to the father it's all to the father's glory what one one commentator says when the confession is made that jesus is lord god suffers no embarrassment rather he is glorified to the glory of god the father for he has planned this to be so this is the culmination not just of creation but the plans for eternity this is where all this is going this is where, 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 where the days of our lives are headed. This is why we obey him now. Because this is all about his glory. And forever, those who love him are going to be enjoying that glory forever. There'll be nothing better for eternity than his glory. Now, I wanted to make sure that we understand verses 9 through 11 before we try to apply verses 9 through 11. So we're going to look next at applying this. And we're not going to exhaust the many potential applications of the fact of the exaltation of Christ. We could talk about worshiping him. We talk about worshiping him and his exaltation for weeks. We could talk about our union with him. We could talk about the fact that this is the, his work being finished. In fact, we're going to see the, the uh, next time we're in Philippians in verses 12 through 13, that Paul's going to draw out other application that I'm going to draw, draw out this morning. But Because I don't want to go ahead. I want to talk about, as we go through this letter, at this point, why does Paul talk about the exaltation of Christ? And I think part of it is that he couldn't stop. Like, this is just too wonderful. This is his heartbeat. But I do think that Paul includes the exaltation of Christ after the command to have the humility of Christ because humility is hard. It is not natural for us as sinners to be humble. We talked about how it can be scary in a sense. You may be tempted to say, but what about me? Right? If I'm only concerned about others, who's going to watch out for me? How can I only, and it says, how can I uh, look out for it says, do not look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest uh, of others. How can I stop looking out for my own interest? Who's going to watch out for me then? We might wonder, is it worth it? Is, is, is all this dying to myself worth it? It feels like no one else is doing this. See, Paul, and remember that they were having friction in their church. I won't say that it was to the point of, of the church falling apart, but, but it had started. So what was to, to drive them to listen to what Paul was saying when others weren't? So we're going to look at, at four ways to be encouraged by the exaltation of Christ as we seek to be humble. The first two of these we're going to spend, spend more time on. These last two will be shorter. So don't. Like, don't get nervous at some point here. Like, oh, this is going on for a while. Okay. Uh, so first, when you humble yourself, wait for your father's reward. Wait for your father's reward. And I feel awkward saying that. And maybe some of you feel awkward hearing that. But Jesus didn't feel awkward saying that. We already looked at Matthew 23, 11 and 12. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus knew his father's plan. He knew his father's heart. The father loves humility. Now, while humility was natural 
for Christ. It is supernatural for us. It is a work of grace in our lives. Without union with Christ, we cannot have this likeness to Christ. We can't be humble like Christ without Christ. Now, as we look at how Jesus motivated them, he says, whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. He's motivating them with being exalted. It's a little weird, right? Right? That might even feel like, oh, I don't I mean, is, is that okay, Jesus? Now, it may sound humble to reject a desire to be exalted. But it's not humble to ignore the reward that the Father is offering. A reward for you as you do what Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And I think that we can say, if it's, if it's not humble to reject the reward that God promises that Christ is offering, and he offers it multiple times. It's proud to ignore this promise. Really, it's humility to listen to it. It's proud for you to assume that you know more about how someone should be motivated than Jesus does. So when he motivates you by exaltation, you should listen. On the other hand, it is humbling to look forward to him exalting you, right? Now, we're talking about being exalted like Christ was exalted? No, right? That was super exalted. But any kind of exalting, like, don't, like doesn't it just even feel humbling even saying that? We know we don't deserve it. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. That's 1 Corinthians 15.10. It's God's grace working through us. So why should I be rewarded for what God is doing in me? It doesn't matter. He promises it. Colossians 1.29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. It's God's power working through us. Why should we be lifted up for what Christ is doing in us? But then if you think about it, we don't deserve any blessing, right? We don't deserve the Father's selection. We don't deserve the Son's sacrifice. We don't deserve the Spirit's sealing. Everything we have has been given to us. So why not look forward to what he promises? And, I, and I've speculated about this, and I think we could speculate. Maybe it's because... We feel uncomfortable receiving. Maybe it's because we'd rather deserve to be lifted up. Right? Because is there anything more humbling that when Christ exalts those who are humble? Right? We don't deserve any of that. But he gives it to us. And we're going to be saying, I don't deserve this. And he's like, I know. But it brings me glory. And that brings my father glory. So be motivated by it. It wasn't selfish for the son to look forward to exaltation. And Dennis read earlier, Hebrews 12, 2, that Christ for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. He was looking forward to this. He was looking forward to being on the other side of the cross. So as we fight to humble ourselves, as we fight to look out for others' interests more than ourselves, listen to your Father's promise and want Him to exalt you. Of course, this is ultimately about His glory, right? But look forward to that reward. You get to participate in this. So remember that when you're tempted to not be humble. Next, when you humble yourself, trust your Father's faithfulness. When you humble yourself, trust your Father's faithfulness. So look forward to your father's reward. Wait for that and trust your father's faithfulness. Now, maybe it's just me because I'm particularly selfish. But when you read Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, do you feel any nervousness? You can just go ahead. Your Bibles are open. Go ahead and just look at that. 
Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Does it make you ask, but what if? Philippians 2, 3 through 5, I'll read it again. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Maybe it's there, it's tantalizing. What would it look like if I didn't do anything from selfishness? If I wasn't always carving off a portion of my life for me, maybe just a, even, even a small portion, a safe portion. It might feel a little scary to you, a little nervous. But what would it look like devoting yourself to the good of others? Not, not just for 80% of the day or 90% of the day, but 100% of the day. Do you feel a little of that? You don't, you don't have to confess now. But what about me? John 12, verses 23 to 26, and this, 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 is, this, this is fantastic. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's looking forward to his crucifixion. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he's talking about himself. If I die, I'm going to bear much fruit. If I, but if I don't die, like nothing good can come from it. But he's applying it to everyone else, too. Listen to what he says in verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 2, 3 through 5. He's talking about hating your life. Re 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 rejecting being in it for yourself in any part of it. In verse 26 of John 12, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. You have to be like me if you're going to serve me. Then he says, and where I am, there my servant will be also. He calls you a servant. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And there's that encouragement again. Serve him by dying to yourself, and the Father will honor you. You don't have to have your back. You don't have to be concerned about your rights. You don't have to watch out for yourself. Serving Jesus requires following Jesus, and following Jesus requires dying to yourself. And yet serving Jesus will, in the end, result in you being honored by the Father. So we have to ask ourselves, as, as, as we think about this, is humility worth it? Is dying to my own interest worth it? Jesus made the promise he will honor you. He will lift you up. But you have to believe that the Father is faithful if you're going to die to yourself. If you're going to become the servant of those around you. The Lord is going to do what he says. Philip, Numbers 23, verse 19 says that God is not a man that he shall lie, nor a son of man that he shall repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? God is going to do what he says. He will honor those who die to themselves. Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5 expresses this, this attitude. And you're going to notice here that uh, um, that Jesus refers back to verse 5 while he's on the cross. So I just kind of wanted to set the stage for Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. He's totally trusting in God's faithfulness here. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength, in verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. What Jesus said on the cross. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. And it's that attitude there of completely entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. What 1 Peter 2.23 Saying no to ourselves because we are trusting ourselves into the Father's hand. See, through God's grace, you can consider others more important than yourself. You can seek their interest. You can exhaust yourselves, exhaust yourselves to see the elect saved and to see the saved flourish. You can be forgotten about. You can be slandered and misrepresented. You can endure shame because you've entrusted yourself to him who judges justly. That's how Jesus lived. It's for the joy set before him. Exaltation was on the other side of the cross. He knew his father was faithful. So he could entrust 
his spirit into his father's hands as he gives up his last breath. And we can too. He's faithful. He will honor those who die to themselves. I told you we had two long ones. We've got two short ones here. When you humble yourself, remember your father's plan. When you humble yourself, wait for your father's reward. Trust your father's faithfulness, but also remember your father's plan. And this is really an overflow of the previous two points, but I think it, it, it bears bringing attention to. Your father has this expansive, complex, glorious plan. In uh, uh, War and Peace, I hear, I haven't read it, someday, I thought about reading it. it. I've started it. You know, you start reading it. How many of you tried War and Peace? Okay, great, we're a very literate crowd. Okay, there's like a lot of names. There's 600 characters in War and Peace. It's a daunting read. In God's plan, there are billions of characters, right? There's 7,000 of us right now. That's not talking all the previous characters. It's an exhaustive, immense plan he's writing. And Jesus knew the Father's plot, right? And that's what this is about. That's why he goes through the humiliation, because he knows the plot. He knows where this is leading. It is leading to his exaltation. He suffered knowing that his father was executing a plan that would put his attributes on display for eternity. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11 is the conclusion that Jesus had been waiting for. And it's the conclusion that we are waiting for, too. Christ has won. The victory is certain. The king will have his glory. So your humility now will one day be part of what this history that God's accomplishing you're seeking others' interest will be on Christ's highlight reel, right? It's going to bring him glory. It's going to be in his best of. Do you, do, you, do you know how he changed Isaiah so that he humbled himself? That's all you, Jesus. It's going to be incredible for his glory. See, we know that God has already put all things under subjection of Christ's feet, that all authority has already been given to him. But there's this sense in which we are waiting 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26 says, He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. We are waiting. We're stuck between the already and the not yet. Between the exaltation of Christ and the every knee bowed. He's already been exalted, but not every knee has been bowed yet. So you pursuing the interests of others beyond yourself, you're humbling yourself, is advancing that plot. You're taking it the next page. And he's going to receive eternal glory for that. Your eternal, I mean, your humility is one more scene on this eternal storyboard that God's writing. He's drawing. So last, when you humble yourself, and I think that, that we get this from Philippians 2, 9 through 11, focus on your Father's glory. Philippians 2, 11 ends to the glory of God the Father. God the Son had relentlessly pursued this conclusion from before creation. Nothing stopped him from going all out for the Father's glory. Your present humiliation, your humbling yourself, and your future exaltation will end in the glory of the Father as well. On that day when Christ rewards you, when your master says to you, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. When your master says that, when you are awarded the crown of righteousness, when you get your imperishable wreath, when you get the crown of life, you will be honored, but the Father will be glorified. Heaven will burst into applause, not because of what you've done, but of what Christ has done through you. So when it is hard to be humble, when it's hard to die to yourself, to seek the interest of your spouses and of those in your care group, when it's hard to regard others as more important than yourselves, remember what the final scene is. Remember that the applause your father is going to get and humble yourself now for the father's glory in eternity. Humble yourself now for the father's glory in eternity. Let's pray. Lord, in this passage, again, uh, you work through your servant Paul 
to capture perfectly this scene. We are humbled by it. When you would give your son your own name, yes, the name he's had for eternity, but now as God-man, God become man, receives your name, Yahweh. Lord, really, I feel like heaven has been opened up and we are humbled by this. And yet, Lord, it's written for our motivation. It's written to motivate us uh, to, to be humble as well. So we praise you, Father, that you have exalted your Son. We praise you, Father, that you have glorified him. We praise you, Father, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we plead for those this morning who are, whose necks are stiff against you, who are rejecting your Son as the bread of life, rejecting him as the light of the rejo- world, rejecting him as the resurrection life. We pray, Father, that you humble them now, even this day, Lord. May they turn to you and be saved so that they can love being part of this scene, Lord, instead of resenting it. Lord, we pray that you would grant grace. We pray, Father, in your grace that you would be changing us and transforming us into the image of your Son, even as as he says to be motivated by the same things that motivated him, to be motivated by your glory, to be motivated by the honor that you give those who humble themselves. We are incredibly humbled by this. We take no pride in it. This is not our working, but yours through us, your Son living in us. But Lord, we do want to seek one another's interests, Lord. We pray, Father, like the uh, Apostle Paul, that in this upcoming week we'd be willing to suffer all things for the sake of the elect. That we'd be like your son, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life because he's such a good shepherd. We'd lay down our lives for one another. Lord, we pray, Father, that in our care groups in this coming week, that we would be speaking your words into one another's lives, Lord. That we'd be encouraging and exhorting and praying. We pray, Father, that we would be trusting you as, 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 as people ignore us or despise us or shame us. Lord, that we would be all in for this eternal scene. So we thank you, Father, for opening up heaven a little bit so we can see your Son exalted. And we do say, Maranatha. We say, Lord, that you send your Son quickly uh, so that you can receive uh, the eternal glory. In Jesus' name, amen.